0: What a week we are having, and it is finally coming to an end. Lots to talk about on this episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with Chris Warnowski, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston. They worked late into the night last night, (laughs) tracking down the wine story as it continued to unfold. So let's, uh, let's get to the podcast so that maybe they won't have to work a long day today. When the dust settled Thursday, Mike DeWine tested negative for the coronavirus about a half day after he tested positive, which is great news for Mike DeWine. But what do we learn from all this? Is there any lesson to be taken away? Is it that rapid tests, the ones that the government wants more of, are bad? Or is it, if you really want to know what the results are, go get tested at a hospital, because if you go to the drugstore, it takes way, way longer. Jane Cahoon, is there a takeaway? What is it?
1: Ooh, I think, you know, the fact that President Trump relies on these rapid tests to protect him from the coronavirus is not really a good thing with what we saw yesterday. I mean, we were talking about how, um, you know, Laura pointed out yesterday that these kinds of rapid tests have a high, you know, a fairly high false negative. And here we got a false positive, apparently. I mean, unless we find out, you know, he's supposed to take one more test uh, on Saturday, so maybe that one will come back positive. So what do
0: you do then? You go with two out of three. I mean,
1: (laughs) 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 it's not really very
0: definitive.
1: Rock
2: paper scissors. Oh Oh, my goodness!
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just going to add fuel to the whole debate about testing and testing accuracy and availability, and you know, it's it's just. I don't know. Maybe we'll get away from the mask debate a little, a little that <laughs> but, was spurred yeah. by his positive test.
0: Right. It is heartening, right, that a guy who is taking the precautions, wearing the mask, limiting his exposure to others actually doesn't have it. I mean, that that <laughs> that's a reinforcement of all the things people have been doing. You know, he said, you know, you can do all that and still get it when he thought he had it. But this is a, a good sign that that, OK, right. keep, keep going. I just, our heads were spinning because yeah. when he had it, it was drop everything. This is big ramifications for the we government. We always say
1: that DeWine keeps giving us whiplash with his decisions. <laughs> <and> his decisions <laughs> with that. But, you know, one thing we should point out when we're talking about this is that the second test that he got was a much more sensitive test called the PCR test that actually detects genetic material that's present in the virus. The first test was you know what they call an antigen test and i'm i don't have enough of a scientific background to to thoroughly understand that but suffice to say that the second test was more sensitive and is considered much more reliable
0: you know he put on a game face during his talk on the porch he, we talked about this on our special podcast last night that that because he's a leader he wasn't going to show worry or fear but I'd be interested to hear from him today now that he he's pretty sure he doesn't have it. Were you afraid? I mean, how worried were yeah. you? Because he's a 73-year-old guy. You're facing your mortality. I, I can't imagine that wouldn't hit you pretty hard. Yeah. Um, and I salute the leadership. He's been a leader throughout this thing. Yeah. Um, you wonder
1: if like folksy, religious Mike DeWine was like cursing a blue streak after (laughs) after all of this. You need to tell me
3: I've worn a mask this whole time, and now (laughs) I have it?
0: (laughs) Well, I'm glad he doesn't have it, because Ohio, I think, still needs him to get him through the crisis, and and, uh, you don't wish that on anybody. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. And what might have been very good news for Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, if he were actually positive for the coronavirus, as he thought, A new study creates a risk assessment for COVID-19 patients based on their initial symptoms. Mike DeWine didn't have initial symptoms, which would have put him in a good place on the scale. What does this study show, Laura Johnston?
2: So researchers at King's College in London analyzed symptoms based on a symptom tracker app from about, I think, 1,600 Americans and Brits. And they found six distinct sets of symptoms, which they said could help clarify how bad the disease was going to be and predict who would need more help recovering, who would be hospitalized. So there are six clusters. The first one is flu-like with no fever, and that includes headache. Um, And the worst is what's called severe level three, and that has all sorts of things with abdominal and respiratory issues. So about 16% of the the people in cluster one have to be hospitalized compared to nearly half in cluster six, and 20% in cluster six need to be on a ventilator. So it really just helps categorize the patients and predict what kind of health they're going to need.
0: Right. So if you get this and you don't have a fever, odds are pretty good for you. If you get this and you have a fever, but you don't have stomach problems, you're you're in a little more danger, but you're okay. But once you get the stomach problems and the brain stuff, you're in big trouble.
2: Yeah. If you have fatigue, confusion, muscle pain, that is this, the worst case to have. So if you get this, I, you hope that you'll have no fever, maybe a sore throat and some cough.
0: But I have those symptoms without COVID-19. So what does <laughs> that mean for me?
2: Well, I think that's a difficult question. I mean, how many people have you known just in the last couple of months that said, I don't feel good? I'm getting a COVID test. And everybody I know who have gotten that ended up negative. But every time now you have a headache or you're stuffed up or you can't taste things very well, you know, you're like, oh my God, maybe I have coronavirus.
0: Chris Wernowski was in that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I was not specifically talking about you, but yes.
0: Well, Chris, yes. you said you, you weren't tasting stuff. That's the, that. Yeah, was really I good. had like
3: a, a day and look, I mean, again, it could have been because of my allergies or sinuses or something, mm-hmm. but it was, uh, you know, it, you weigh that risk. It's, you know, and then, and then for me is, you know, to give you a window into my personality, I feel bad for getting a <laughs> test now because I'm like, ah, you know, somebody else could have had this test and they probably need it more than I do. But, but it, no, it everybody,
2: it, if you have a question, you are supposed to get tested at Right. Point.
3: I get that. But it's, it's, it's like our, our capacity to test has become a question of resources and, you know, and the governor touched on it yesterday. You know, he, mm-hmm. he said we're up to what, 20,000, what is 22, it? 22,000 a, a, a day, I believe. A day. And he wants to, to double, double that. It. And, yeah. and, you know, we're, we're seven months, six, seven months into this. And, And we aren't as a nation, as a state, as a community, we're not where we need to be with that. And, you know, frankly, at this point, you know, for for being one of the wealthiest nations in the in the world, we we kind of are are still lagging in that area. And it's kind of shameful.
0: But you are the person that the governor said should get tested it. Like Clark said, if you have a symptom or a doubt, so you did the right thing. You're negative. That's great news. But that's the whole purpose of getting tested, because if you were positive, you know, you the people in your life would then have been exposed and you'd have to take precautions. So it's I mean, it's all good. I mean, I'm glad you didn't have it, but I hope you get your sense of taste back. You're listening for this week in the CLE. The Cuyahoga County Sheriff persuaded the county council to replenish his munitions after using so many of them on protesters May 30th. So why did he buy twice as much as he used that day? Chris Arnowski, before before you answer that question, I do want to point out that the county council approved all this before anybody has gotten to the bottom of what actually went down that day. Like, did the sheriff and his team improperly use these munitions? Did the sheriff and his team trigger the violence by shooting beanbags and things at people who were not being violent? So, So it's Kind of shameful that we're moving ahead with these purchases without knowing what happened, but answering this question is a bit of a shocker,
3: yeah, basically they said the, they they said that they want to make sure that they have enough for two more demonstrations of that magnitude, so you know they, they basically said it would be silly of us to just buy enough for us to deal with one protest and then use up all of our munitions and then have to buy more again. So they bought roughly, I think it was like 1100 rounds of less lethal munitions uh, since June, uh, having used at least 626 rounds on protesters and rioters on May 30th. And they spent about $56,000 to buy this stuff. And it's all, it's pepper balls, tear gas canisters, rubber ball grenades, pepper spray foggers, and smoke devices.
0: You know, as Corey Schaefer has pointed out, this is really the first time ever in Cuyahoga County that this kind of thing has been used on the populace, that that largely peaceful protesters were fired upon with this kind of stuff. So I imagine for the people who were at the protest, hearing they're going to have twice as much of this stuff to fire at them does not make them feel very good.
3: Well, and, and you're right. And the point you made at the beginning of this segment is is that we have no real sense of of what the county's liability is for what happened on May 30th. You know, they're apparently still doing, you know, both the sheriff's department and the Cleveland Police Department are still apparently doing internal investigations into, you know, whether or not what officers did was appropriate. Um, you know, and, and I, I made the joke before the podcast started that, that I feel like if they're going to spend $56,000 on less lethal munitions, they should also set aside hundreds of thousands of dollars to settle the lawsuits that are going to come from uh, this eventually, you know, becoming a problem. And, 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 and it is, I mean, look, we've, we've spent as a community millions of dollars settling use of force and police lawsuits in the past, in the time since I've been here. And, you know, it's the fact that there was not a A larger conversation by the county council about what happened, and that they just sort of i mean almost unanimously approved this. The only dissenting council person said, yeah, yeah I think the police should try to deescalate, so I don't know it it's just it's mind boggling and very typical of the county, but also you know just just a bad look you know i you would you would think that they would have a, a better understanding of of the the larger conversation surrounding use of force and policing in this country right now, but you know you maybe raised, they feel it died down and nobody cares.
0: You raise an interesting point though about the lack of conversation. It seems like the the smaller the government body, the more likely it is you'll have a debate about an issue that that in a in a town of ten thousand, if something comes up, the people will have it. But as you get to this county level where the conversation is seriously needed, they just don't have it. I mean, this this county council form of government, it's it's more than 10 years old now, and it just has not proven itself to be the vehicle we hoped it would be. I mean, this that is exactly where there should be this debate. They should have people come in. They should be talking to the sheriff. They should be talking to the protesters. What happened here? What happened right? What happened wrong? to try and set policy for the future. But but over and over again, they just don't. They don't have the conversation. And lately, as we've been pointing out their ridiculous run of no bid contracts and lack of transparency, they're getting defensive saying, well, we, we think what we're doing is right without having these conversations. And I just boggles the mind. The city council of Cleveland is the same way. They just do not have the much needed debate on significant issues of public policy. So where are we going to get it?
3: I don't know. And frankly, I I have to be honest, I did not watch this meeting. I, I, you know, I don't know how much or little conversation they did have about this in in a public forum. But, you know, the other thing that's kind of missing, I think, is the public engagement. You know, I, you know, for all the people who went to the May 30th protest, you know, are they, are they coming to these meetings? Are they, you know, are, you know, are they aware that these decisions are being made on their behalfs as taxpayers by I, these people I'm, sitting in this council?
0: I've got you one better. They should be in, the council should be inviting them in yeah. to ask them what they saw. I mean, that's part of the job is to, right, but
3: you can't, you can't assume that the government you know, I mean, look, the guy like left to its own devices, I think all of us have been journalists long enough to understand that, you know, you know, given the opportunity to make these decisions without public input, they'll take them and And I think you know there <laughs> there, there there's a reason why we put up a stink when, you know, meetings are closed and and court proceedings when judges try to shut those down to the public, you know. We make a stink because we feel like we have a responsibility to tell the public about this. But, you know, the reason that government gets bad is because we discontinue our engagement with it. And we just assume that these people are going to work on our behalf. And it's really, I think, incumbent upon us as citizens and to to engage with the process and, and not just engage with the process when we have protests, you know, the protest right. doesn't stop when the protest is over. Then you have the heart. The hard work is staying interested in government but, well, but, it's, it but. Takes time and it's
0: boring and it's in. But stop. You know, you have to, there yeah. was there was a riot in downtown yeah. Cleveland and the bodies that are responsible for that have not dealt with it. Forget that right. other stuff. Yeah. Just the acute emergency of people being attacked by their police forces has not been held up for scrutiny and when Cleveland City Council did it the police chief came in and said I'm not prepared to talk to you and they accepted it without saying what do you mean you're not prepared to talk about it you knew you were going to be here today start answering the damn questions and the county council hasn't even brought people in to ask about it so yeah you can get into people should be engaged in government but this is a much more immediate concern anyway
3: right and i just want to say that they will they will settle these lawsuits and they will have to admit no fault and you know, we'll kind of circle back and probably be in this position at some point in the future. So that's that.
0: You're listening to this week in the CLE. What were the highlights of President Donald Trump's visit to Cleveland Thursday? Jen Cahoon, on any other day, a presidential visit would have been the biggest story of the day. But Mike DeWine's positive coronavirus test, later to be negative, overshadowed it. But he was here and he was in Ohio. What What did he do? What did he say?
1: Well, the whole day really felt like a campaign event, but but he did have an official purpose to his visit which was to go to the Whirlpool factory in Clyde, Ohio, where he mostly talked about the economy. You know, he touted the tariffs that he imposed on foreign-made washing machines which really helped Whirlpool and um but he he kind of, you know, glossed over the fact that that we face really big economic challenges right now because of the coronavirus pandemic um, but he did say that he thought the the crisis of the over the coronavirus was going to be over sooner sooner than people think and he of course called it the China virus that's his messaging on that um, to blame China for it but honestly you know I thought there were other parts to his visit that were a little more interesting or certainly more provocative or Arguably bizarre, uh, he he went on Geraldo Rivera's show radio show in Cleveland in the morning uh, before he came, and started talking about what a fantastic job he's you know that that's his word fantastic job he's done on handling the coronavirus and and then once again you know he he blamed China for that but but then when he arrived at Burke Front Airport he held sort of like a mini rally outdoors. there were about a hundred people 100 supporters there you know wearing masks but huddled really close together and he gave this sort of brief speech but this is where I think it got a little bizarre you know attacking his rival Joe Biden you know after saying that Biden hasn't done anything in office for 47 years he he predicted that Biden was gonna you know take away people's guns and Second Amendment rights and that he was going to hurt god you know that there was going to be no religion you know under joe biden he said he's against god he's against guns and he's against energy our kind of energy so you know and then also despite the polls showing a really close race he was like i'm gonna i'm not gonna have any problem in ohio you know um which he could be absolutely right about that, but um, and then he finished his day at this private fundraiser in Brattonall. But as I said, the part about hurting God, I just thought was really, you know, that's a that's a I don't know. <laughs> we are bizarre. in we are in
0: for three <laughs> strange months. <I> mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's going to be one of the strangest campaigns we've ever had, and. Who knows where it's gonna go. Yeah, you know, the hurting God Actually going on Geraldo and saying he did a he's done a fantastic job with the coronavirus was was you know I mean, I don't think by anybody's objective measure that's true. I mean, we've done a terrible right. job with the coronavirus. We're one of the worst in the world for it. Um and to just say the opposite and your followers will nod. It just doesn't make sense. I mean, can I anyway. can I
3: add something here really quick? Yeah, go ahead. It it is worth noting that Joe Biden is famously Catholic. So to paint a portrait of Joe Biden as an anti-religion candidate is patently absurd. Like I like when I heard that, I was like, like one of the handful of things most people know about Joe Biden is his faith is important to him. So I like I just I don't see where any thinking person could buy that. But, you know, here we are.
2: You, you This is Laura Johnston, thinking person. <laughs> right?
3: Hey, hey, look, I'm not judging who people vote for, but I kind of am.
0: Okay. <laughs> That's a good perspective, Chris. You're listening <laughs> to This Week in the CLE. What's a pandemic pod and how might it make a big difference for working parents coping with the closure of school buildings as the academic year begins? Laura Johnson, we've had plenty to talk about with regard to the opening of schools and the stress of of kids staying at home on working parents. This story we published, I think, this week about pandemic pods might be a solution. How does it work?
2: So a pandemic pod is a small group of students who come together to learn while their school buildings are closed. And some parents are hiring tutors or teachers to lead the pod, even for a few hours a day. The idea is this pod gives kids some much-needed socialization and helps keep kids on task, especially if their parents are working. They could get homework help from that tutor or their their peers. This is a big topic of debate right now. I mean, not only are you saying, well, if you put the kids together, you're, you're asking for the virus to spread, but then you're also hearing that this is going to really um, – Widen the gap between kids who have a lot of—I um, mean, it's just the haves and have-nots—and so it's a question of whether this is a good thing. I've seen a lot of posts on social media of people asking for, like, a teenager, a, a college kid, to serve as a pod teacher. So uh, I haven't seen a lot of people answering those requests, though.
0: Well, for look, I get it—the the haves and have-nots—that gulf continues to grow which is kind of a responsibility of the government and society. But as a parent of a child, you're going to do what is best within your means for your child. And so Mm -hmm. if you're looking at remote learning based on the spring being a not workable solution for your child, and you can get this for a reasonable price with three or four other people, you're going to do it. I mean, you're not going to think about the kids that that don't get access to it. You're going to going to do what's best for your kid. I just wonder whether this is something school districts could learn from. And is there a way to narrow that have not have group by trying to, to do this, even if it were for part of the day, even if you mm-hmm. had a team of people that did this? The problem is, is who, what teacher wants to do that? What teacher would want to? go into houses where they could get the coronavirus. We'll put them
2: in a tent, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> take them outside. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think this is something we're going to be seeing a lot more of uh, in August as we get really close to the start of school.
0: Look, we all, we all were pushed into this in, in an urgent crisis fashion, but parents of kids like you, Laura, got a real taste of what it's like trying to work while trying to make sure your kids are learning remotely. And it didn't work, largely. So everybody is looking for a solution until everybody can get back to school. And the pandemic pod is is an interesting approach. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. If the coronavirus situation is improving in Cuyahoga County, why do it remain red in the newest map released Thursday? And was the news better for Summit County? Chris Ranowski, we keep hearing that the masks are working in Cuyahoga County and we've seen steady drops over the last two, three weeks in the Cuyahoga County numbers. Yeah, we stay red. What's going on with that?
3: Yeah. So I, if, if people don't re- realize this, because this, this, this color coded process is kind of, uh, it's, it's a lot to wrap your head around sometimes. Um, we got really like Cuyahoga County got really, really close to hitting the purple designation, which is the most extreme designation that the state has. But we stayed in the red, despite um, our numbers going down a little bit, because Cuyahoga County currently only meets two of the seven indicators, uh, because the n- and the number of cases hasn't fallen under the rate of 100 per one thousand people over a two-week period, which is, I think, the thing that they're using to say, "Okay, now you have to go back down to the orange level." So we just we haven't got the number of cases down per per capita to the rate that the health officials say uh, takes us out of this this more extreme uh, designation of being in the
0: red, as they but, call it. But Summit County did.
3: Yeah, Summit County is sort of improving in, in to a degree that they were able to lower their their uh their threat level I guess. Do we call it threat level or no, is that, no. that that is that the 911 thing that I keep <laughs> like <laughs> I much uh, Rainbow uh, uh that I'm I'm looking at sometimes.
2: Um. I wanted to add in that Hamilton County. I was really surprised to see Cincinnati seeing that was the big first hot spot that they pointed out that it is now in the orange that it's the first big city in Ohio if you count the three big c's um that has dropped out of red.
0: Yeah, I know. And it does. It is evidence that Damascus is working. So it's good news for everybody. But and maybe next week we'll finally get the orange. It's this week in the CLE. Is the presidential debate in Cleveland still the first one on the calendar? Jen Cahoon, I was a little worried we weren't going to be first after getting all excited about that. Of course, if we weren't first, it would mean the protesters would go to another city and cause all sorts of trouble there. And maybe we wouldn't. But what? where do we stand and what, what's the basis for my question?
1: Well, despite an effort by the Trump campaign to to schedule another debate earlier, uh, they the what what happened was President Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, a name you all know well, had written to the Commission on Presidential Debates earlier in the week, you know, raising concerns that with so many people voting early uh, that that they thought September 29th, which is the, the date of the Cleveland debate, that that would be too late and that some people would be already voting. But the the commission responded really, really pretty quickly. Um, but the, the Trump campaign wanted to either add like a fourth debate before the Cleveland debate, or they wanted to like take the last one and move it up into an earlier spot. But anyway, the commission, uh, as I said, responded pretty quickly, basically saying, no, we're we're leaving it as it is. They said anybody who requested an early ballot could easily wait until after the first debate to turn it in, and that you know these debates are highly publicized, the schedule's highly publicized, and any voter who wants to to watch one or more debates before voting is is well aware of that.
0: Okay, so Cleveland will be first. you're Cleveland listening will be first yeah you're listening <laughs> to this week in the CLE. Does the latest video from the May 30th protest and riot in downtown Cleveland, the video we obtained through a public records request, really show a law enforcement officer blasting a peaceful protester with pepper spray? Chris Warnowski, Corey Schaefer keeps getting these videos. I don't know why they didn't release them all at once and get it out of the way. The trickle <laughs> has meant a long stream of pretty big headlines. What does this video show?
3: So basically what it shows is there. They, it starts out, where this woman is having kind of a exchange with a uh, a member of law enforcement and and there's a gentleman kinda you can kind of see him come in and out of the frame who's holding what looks like a i, I think it like a handicap parking sign and and he i don't know if it was uprooted or or how he got it, but um and you know this woman is you know talking to this officer you know commenting on the disparity between the the weapons that the police were using versus you know what the people you know who were attending the protest and you know eventual riot you know what they were doing and 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 then there's just a moment where there's some jostling and then you see him spray her like directly in the face with a a pretty substantial stream of pepper spray. And, and, and then, you know, he, and, and, you know, people kind of come around her and, you know, they, they try to help her and, you know, they try to sort of stabilize her for a minute. And, and then there's a moment where he sort of starts to, he says, you know, she threw a, and then he kind of stops himself and said, he threw a parking sign. You might want to tell your folks that, you know, that's what I was trying to tell her uh, to tell him to to go away with that sign, you know, and and, and it was just I mean, it's really bizarre. You know, it's
0: but she wasn't you know. she wasn't threatening. She wasn't aggressive. I mean, she doesn't meet any of the standards by which police are supposed to do that. Actually, yeah. is there is there any effort at deescalation, which is what they're supposed to do? right i mean
3: it's you know i i can't i can't find an objective reason why this this like she got sprayed in the face like it like it just it it seems like totally inappropriate but um you know and and what's interesting is we we contacted the police department about this and and you know they they were like oh okay well we'll look into it and we were like well I mean, we tried to get more specific about that. And it's like, well, are you doing an internal investigation into this? And they're like, eh, yeah, we are now. And and so <laughs> so you they, asked, right. And it's like, you know, it, it, it's it's again, like we we still have some video to go through. So we don't know if there's anything else that we're missing. But I mean, every one of these videos has just been, you know, difficult to watch and, 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 and really, you know, raises a lot of questions just about, you know, where we are in our, attempts to sort of address the issues with law enforcement as a community. You know, I mean, we had a big reckoning in the city, but, you know, it, you know, I I think now we need to have a conversation if this, if if these kind of efforts to address police issues needs to broaden out and touch the rest of the County. And, and so, you know, we'll, we'll see the story. You know, we, I, I hopefully we'll have a, a follow up on it this weekend. You know, Corey's working on that today. Um, So, you know, keep your eyes peeled for this and, and, you know, hopefully we'll get more of this story, uh, this weekend
0: or next week. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. We will have to leave it there. I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. This weather this week has been kind of to die for, for August. It's not been stultifyingly hot. I hope it, uh, hope it stays that way Mm -hmm. this week in the CLE. We'll be back on Monday. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to everybody who's listening.